Okay. Last time I spoke here, I think it was at the beginning of this year, uh, and uh, I spoke uh, about King David. Uh, and, uh, and I think when we talked, he was in uh, King David and, and Saul had encountered each other in the wilderness of En Gedi. Uh, you remember that whole cave sermon thing that we did uh, where uh, David came up on Saul and Saul was taking care of his business in, in a cave and David snuck up and he cut off the hem of his garment. Uh, and, you know, at that time, uh, David was a young guy, hadn't yet assumed the throne uh, but he was on the run from Saul, and he spent a lot of years on the run uh, from Saul uh, before David eventually uh, took the throne. Uh, and he took the throne uh, in about 1000 BC, roughly. Uh, and at that point in time, he would have been 30 years, 30 years old, so real young guy uh, at that point. Um, when we pick up our story uh, today, uh, he's about 20 years uh, into his reign, uh, age 50. And uh, about age 50, he commits his second most famous act in the Bible. Uh, what, was his, what was his first? What was the thing David everybody thinks of? Even if you've never been to church in your entire life, right? You know about uh, David, David and Goliath, right? I mean, that's, I mean, it's an analogy that's used. People even, haven't even heard of the Bible. They know who David and Goliath. Well, the second most uh, famous or infamous act, uh, probably, uh, in uh, David's life occurs at the age of 50. Uh, and that involves a lady named Bathsheba and a man named Uriah. And you know the, the, the story. Uh, you know, it's time for, uh, to, to, to go out to war. It's springtime, winter's over. Everybody was real civilized back then. They didn't try to kill you uh, during the winter. Uh, they waited for spring. Uh, spring is over, and uh, the armies are going out to war, and David doesn't go. Now, uh, we don't know exactly why he didn't go. Uh, maybe he'd gotten uh, lazy. Maybe it was uh, he was, you know, t- taking a vacation. Maybe it's because he was... He was 50, you know, I mean, uh, now 50 nowadays, I mean, you're in the prime of your life at, at 50. Uh, 50 is the new 30, right? Uh, but uh, back then, you know, you didn't live quite as long. And 50 was, you know, kind of an old guy at 50 years old, believe it or not. Uh, and so maybe that had something to do with it. But for whatever reason, he stayed home. All right, you guys, you know, know the story. He's out when he shouldn't have been, saw Bathsheba, uh, he wanted her, took her, because he's the king. Right? And, and as an aside, uh, you know, uh, Samuel warned uh, the, the people, that you don't have a king, right? You know, don't have a king. Uh, the people of Israel insisted on a king, and they got Saul. But one of the reasons that uh, Samuel uh, you know, warned them not to have a king is because, you know, you can say no uh, to, you know, a, a judge. You can say no to the mayor or the governor or maybe even the president, but when you got a king, you can't say no to the king, right? And, and Samuel warned uh, that, you know, the king will take your sons, he'll take your daughters, he'll send them off to war, he'll use them as servants. Samuel warned that this was a bad idea, and indeed, you know, it was. Uh, and you can't say no to the king. David got what he wanted, uh, Bathsheba, uh, got pregnant. 
And David needed to cover up what he had done because the word came back to him that, uh, that Bathsheba uh, was pregnant. And, and so he calls her husband, Uriah, home from, from war, right? Because Uriah's out on the front lines. By the way, there's a, there's a town in South Alabama, Southwest Alabama called Uriah. I discovered it the other day uh, on my way to, uh, uh, to a football game. Uh, calls Uriah home from, from war. Uh, and he says, Uriah, take a break, go home, see your wife. Wouldn't that be a great idea? But Uriah is not going to go home when his men are out bleeding on the battlefield. So he goes and sleeps on the front doorstep, essentially, of his house. David finds out. Oh, man, he's frustrated. Keeps Uriah a second day. Gets him drunk. Gets him drunk. Points him in the general direction of home. Go see your wife. But Uriah, drunk, had more honor than King David did, and he wouldn't do it. So finally, as you may recall, what does David do, right? He writes a note uh, to his, uh, his general, and he tells the general, Joab, when Uriah gets back to the front, send him out to the front lines, when in, the, when, the battle, when the heat of battle, leave Uriah there and withdraw from him. Signs it, seals it, gives Uriah the pleasure of carrying his own death sentence out uh, to, uh, to Joab. Joab gets it, reads it. You don't say no to the king. Follows orders. Basically, participates in the murder uh, of Uriah. And, you know, David repents of his sin uh, uh, eventually, and the prophet Nathaniel visits him and, and uh, uh, tells him that God has forgiven him. Uh, however, sin always has consequences, right? I mean, every sin comes packaged with a consequence. Uh, and David had to deal with the consequences of his sin. Uh, and they were, uh, as we're going to talk about a little today, uh, far-reaching, because you flash forward a few years, and David has a son named Amnon. And Amnon is the oldest of David's son and the heir apparent to the throne. Uh, Amnon had a thing for his half-sister Tamar, and he hatched a scheme uh, that put him in a position to, to force himself on his sister, and that's what he did. Now, Tamar's brother is a guy named Absalom. Absalom and Tamar have this. It gets very confusing, by the way, when you deal with King David and his many wives and half-brothers and all that kind of stuff. But Tamar uh, had a brother, and his name was Absalom. They, were, they had the same father, David, and the same mother. Uh, and after Tamar is assaulted, King David finds out what happens, uh, and he's very angry about it. Uh, and you know what he did in response? He didn't do anything about it. Absalom, her brother, finds out about it, uh, and he's not as passive as David. Uh, and he has a plan to bring Amnon to justice. Uh, he waits a couple of years. By the way, you should read your Bible sometime, you know, in this, this stuff, because, you know, there's a, incredible stories 
uh, in uh, the Old Testament, uh, and the details of which I, I wouldn't get into uh, here with you necessarily on Sunday morning. Uh, but uh, Absalom hatches a scheme, waits a couple of years, right? Very patient guy. Uh, Amnon thinks that, eh, this is all kind of blown over. Uh, Absalom acts like everything is okay. He asks the king if the king and all of the brothers will come to Absalom's house for a big feast. The king says, nah, I can't make it. Uh, it would just be a burden to you anyway, but it's okay if you have all of your brothers there. So Absalom has all of the, the king's sons there, including Amnon. Uh, they have a big feast. They drink heavily, right? Uh, and David instruct, uh, Absalom instructs his servants, uh, when Amnon is drunk, kill him. And that's what happens. Uh, they wait until everybody's feasting and drunk, and, and then Absalom gives the order, and Amnon's killed. After the murder, Absalom flees north to what we would call today Syria, and his brothers, who are scared to death, flee back to Jerusalem. King David finds out about the murder of Amnon, and uh, you know what he did? Yeah, all right, yeah. Not much, we'll say that, not much. Uh, in uh, response, uh, basically Absalom became a persona non grata in the kingdom. Uh, David just didn't deal with him. He just refused to, to talk to him. And so Absalom stays in exile uh, for a while. Uh, and by the way, you know, David, I mean, this is a guy who uh, was very much concerned with honor and, and justice as a young guy, um, doing what was right regardless uh, of the consequences. Uh, I mean, we see that when he was a teenager, slaying Goliath, calling out the armies of uh, Israel for their cowardice. Um, we see it when he was a 20-something uh, in the wilderness of En Gedi, uh, refusing to kill the king when he had the chance because that wasn't his place uh, to do that. But now he, he, we see a guy who's a spectator, right? Uh, he's, he's passive. His children uh, are engaging in some horrific Acts, and he's standing kind of idly by. I mean, why do you think that is? Uh, I mean, we don't know. I mean, there's no passage in the Bible that explains that uh, to us. Uh, but maybe uh, David felt like, yeah, maybe he felt like he lacked the moral authority, you know, to, uh, to, 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 to get on his kids. I mean, uh, after all, you know, his children would have been very much aware of his sin with Bathsheba. Uh, they were old enough to know what was going on. Uh, in a place where you had lots of slaves and servants, uh, the walls had ears. And people talked. And it wasn't long. I mean, uh, the prophet uh, Nathaniel found out real quick. Uh, but his kids would have known what he had done. I mean, he was, you want to talk about premeditated murder? This was, his, his murder of Uriah was not a you know, crime of passion kind of a deal. I mean, that was cold-blooded murder. And his kids, it would have, I mean, this stuff had come out. They knew that. Um, how could he look his children in the eye and condemn them for what they were doing uh, when I mean, he was about as bad as you could, you could get. 
Well, whatever his reasons, his failure to intervene in the tragedy with Tamar, uh, his failure uh, to exercise leadership as both the king and the parent uh, had some dire consequences. Uh, One is that there was a growing resentment uh, by Absalom of his dad. Uh, Absalom is in exile. He's trying to get uh, his dad to talk to him, uh, to, I mean, you know, take some kind of action. David keeps him at arm's distance. He can't even get a word in. There's this interesting thing where Absalom in exile uh, sends his servants to burn down the farm of Joab, you know, David's general. Burn it down. Why? So Joab would get angry and come see Absalom. And so he does. He burns the, burns the guy's farm down. Joab comes to see him and says, what in the world are you doing? And he says, well, now that I have, and Absalom says, now that I have your attention, can you get a message to the king for me? And he does. David and, and, and Absalom have some reconciliation uh, there of, of a kind, but the resentment is still there. Uh, and Absalom Uh, who is, as we know from his murder of Amnon, a patient guy, right? He can wait a couple years or more to hatch his plan. Um, uh, His resentment of his father grows to the point where he hatches uh, a rebellion, a coup uh, against uh, his father. And he spends a couple of years setting the stage uh, for it. I mean, you know, the anger this guy had, uh, he had taken action to bring justice for his sister, Tamar, when his father had done nothing. And what did he get for it? Got treated like he didn't exist. Anger grows. I mean, and by the way, Absalom, from what the Bible tells us, as an intelligent guy, a great leader, uh, looked good, I guess. His, some people, read somebody's words, his hair uh, was said to have weighed about five pounds, right? He had so much, guy had so much hair on his head. He only got it cut once a year, uh, evidently. Uh, and uh, I guess, I think that was because it was so, it was so thick, he had to get it cut. Uh, it, he had become, uh, I mean, not only was he, did he have everything going from him for him from an appearance standpoint and from an intelligence standpoint, but he was a great politician. He had become kind of a man of the people, during this time period. And what he would do is he would go to the city gate and he would sit there and he would wait for people to come with their problems, right? Because back in the day there, uh, the king kind of acted as the judge uh, to uh, resolve people's problems. They would come before the king. We see this a lot with Solomon, all these stories about how Solomon would resolve these disputes. Well, David did kind of the same thing. Uh, But I don't know if David, David's docket was backed up or if David uh, just got lazy, but it, it appeared that people's problems weren't getting addressed by the king. Uh, and so Absalom goes and he sits at the gate and he says, I mean, he's kind of like a Judge Judy or something, you know. I mean, hey, if you'll you know, give up your right to be before the king, come to me and I'll resolve your dispute. And that's what people did. And they came and he was wise and he dispensed justice and he listened to their problem. And when people came, they tried to bow down to him uh, as the king's son. He refused to let him bow down and he gave him a hug and a kiss and told him how much he appreciated them, how much he loved them, unlike their current king who had become detached. So over the year, a couple of years, 
people grow to love him. And then Absalom reaches the point where he asks his uh, uh, dad permission uh, to, uh, to go to Hebron uh, and for the purpose of supposedly making a sacrifice. Uh, and David grants him permission and Absalom journeys to Hebron, which is the place that he's going to launch his rebellion uh, from. Uh, and so Absalom takes a group of men with him to Hebron and they're joined by others. And the Bible tells us that the conspiracy against David and with Absalom grew very, very strong and that the people with Absalom increased continually on a daily basis. And in uh, Hebron, by the way, I mean, maybe that name is somewhat familiar uh, to you. Kind of an appropriate place, and it was no mistake uh, that Absalom chose that place because it is where the reign of King David began. David originally reigned in Hebron, spent, I, believe, I think it was like two years there uh, before uh, he, he went to sit on the throne in Jerusalem. So this is all part of the plan for Absalom. And he goes and he, he uh, makes his home in Hebron and uh, he sends messengers to all the tribes of Israel and says, when, I get, when you hear the trumpet sound, I want you to yell out, Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. And by the way, it wouldn't have been difficult for people to believe that that was the case uh, because the king was old. Absalom was high profile guy uh, at the time. And it wouldn't have been difficult for them to believe that for, for whatever reason, Absalom was king. Hebron would have been the right, you know, would have been a great place uh, for him to begin uh, his reign. Uh, and so I, that's what happens. The trumpet sound, or the ram's horn sounds uh, and the coup is launched. Uh, and that's where we're going to, to pick up the story uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 15. We're gonna begin in verse 13. And about the, by, uh, at this time, David's probably 60, 61. Uh, so uh, he, again, prime your life for us today. Uh, back then, not so much. We're just gonna start in verse 13. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, all Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Verse 14, David says, then we must flee at once or it will be too late, David urged his men. Hurry, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. Now let's stop there for just a moment. Uh, David could have made his stand in Jerusalem. Uh, it would have made sense in a lot of respects to make your stand uh, in Jerusalem. I mean, you're fortified uh, there. But by this time, Absalom has the, whole entire, has the entire army of Israel with him. Uh, and David knew that if Absalom made it to Jerusalem with the king still there, that Absalom would, would assume that everyone in Jerusalem was with the king and would put them all to the sword. Uh, that would have been a typical thing for someone conquering uh, a city uh, to do. And, and David also knew that the odds were against him. I mean, he was not gonna win a battle against his own army with the few men that he had with him that were essentially his bodyguards that were still loyal to him. Uh, so to save his people and, and himself, uh, David decides to run. Verse 15, we are with you, his advisors replied. Do what you think is best. 
So the king and all his household set out at once. He left no one behind except 10 of his concubines to look after the palace. We're gonna jump down to verse 23. Everyone cried loudly as the king and his followers passed by. They crossed the Kidron Valley and then went out towards the wilderness. Okay, so I'm gonna put a map up here because I like maps. And just to, to give you a little bit of an idea, and I also have a laser pointer here. There's Jerusalem, right? And you see Hebron down below. And Absalom is coming up from Hebron to Jerusalem. David is making his exit out of Jerusalem, right? Towards the Jordan River over here. Uh, and the Kidron Valley is right outside of Jerusalem. And we're going to look at a picture of that in just a second. Uh, and so Absalom's coming up. David is headed uh, out uh, right, uh, right here. And uh, within 24 hours or less, right, David has gone from being king on the throne to a fugitive uh, in, in the valley uh, fleeing for his life. And the Kidron Valley uh, is on the eastern side of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is, an, you know, this would be the valley area right here. And this is about a turn of the century picture uh, of it. The Kidron Valley area looking back up into Jerusalem. Kidron Valley has been known by many names, lots of significance historically and biblically. Uh, but what you can see right here, and this is actually, by the way, this little thing here uh, is Absalom's monument, uh, which uh, the story for another time. But you can see looking back up, get kind of the perspective of what it would be like being in the Kidron Valley looking back up uh, at the walls of Jerusalem. Imagine a 61-year-old David, right? Uh, probably hasn't done a lot of running uh, for a while. Uh, uh, basically running for his life. Uh, and he, he's stumbling down into that valley trying to make his way to escape into the wilderness. Uh, and he's looking back up at a, that great city uh, that he may never see again. I think it was overwhelming uh, for, uh, for him uh, at the time. I mean, at 61 years of age, uh, the great King David, uh, he had lost his kingdom, uh, his army, his family, uh, the hearts of most of the people uh, of Israel to this, you know, to his own son, a son that, you know, the Bible tells us, I mean, was kind of his favorite son. Um, and he's stumbling now through the valley. Uh, and the Bible tells us that the people are, are kind of on the sides, wailing and crying. And then we come to this kind of incredible passage. Verse 24. Zadok and all the Levites also came along carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God, and Abathar offered sacrifices until everyone had passed out of the city. Uh, Zadok uh, is, a, is the high priest, and a descendant, actually, of Aaron, uh, the original high priest. Um, and he, Zadok, and his priests are fleeing with David, and they've got the Ark of the Covenant uh, with them, safe from Absalom. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those things where, hey, we got to get uh, save the ark. 
And so they got the ark and, and they're carrying it out with them. And it was a big deal to have the ark because even though Jerusalem was lost, uh, they, had, they had saved this hugely important symbol of God's presence with them. And if you were with David, one of those people scared out of your mind, stumbling through the valley, trying to figure out, hey, was this really a good idea or should I have stayed back in Jerusalem? Um, you might have been scared, but when you saw that ark, you felt better about what was going on. When you saw the high priest and the ark, uh, you know, to you, that would have meant, hey, God is with us. God is with me. I've got, we've got the ark. You know, and, and David could have pointed to the ark and to the priests that were with him as a sign that God was on his side, right? I mean, I've got the ark. God has to be with me. I've got this, this box. Uh, but that's not what he did. And, and, and David, by the way, had a, a, a kind of a long history with the Ark uh, of the Covenant. You might remember that passage in the Bible where David brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem and he's dancing, you know, in front of it and there's this huge celebration. I mean, this was, you know, this wasn't just the, some religious symbol for David. I mean, this was a this was big deal for him. And here's what he said in verse 25. Then the king instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back into the city. If the Lord sees fit, David said, he will bring me back to see the ark in the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. Now, why would David send back to Jerusalem the high priest and the ark, both of which he could have used as tools to win back his people, right? Uh, look at me. I mean, God is with me. You should be with me. The high priests are with me. You should be with me. That's what Absalom, I mean, you got to think that's what Absalom was going to do if he sent all that stuff back to Jerusalem. Why give your enemy the opportunity to, to, to use uh, and manipulate these, these symbols? Um, Maybe he didn't want uh, the people that remained in Jerusalem to think that God had abandoned them just because their king had to flee. Uh, I mean, after all, the ark was a symbol of God's presence with the people of Israel, not a symbol of his presence with the king. Uh, and uh, I think David probably decides that uh, he's not going to fool the people of Israel or himself by pretending that God's blessing is upon him or that God is with him just because he has possession of this ark. Right? Because that wouldn't have been true if Absalom had it, and it wasn't necessarily true if David had it. Um, David knew that surrounding himself with ceremony and symbols didn't mean that he was in God's will. Right? Uh, just because he won the race to get the ark before Absalom did didn't mean that God was with him. Uh, just mean, meant that he had managed to get possession of the ark first. Uh, being in God's will I think David realized, um, required submitting to God's plan. Uh, and that's what we see uh, in these verses 25 and 26. It requires submitting to God's plan even if it wasn't the outcome that David uh, was uh, desiring. Uh, he says in verse 25 and 26, I'll paraphrase a little bit, uh, if the Lord sees fit, he'll bring me back to Jerusalem. I'll see the tabernacle 
in the ark again. I'll have my throne again, if the Lord sees fit. But if this is it, right, if he's through with me, then let him do what, he seem, what seems best to him. David surrenders the outcome of this horrible, tragic, crazy situation to God. Whatever you want, God, do it. If you want to restore me in Jerusalem, great. But if that's not your will, you do what seems best to you. I mean, it's an epic moment in David's relationship with God that it had many epic moments uh, in it. Uh, but it's born out of a truly tragic situation. Um, you can bet that this is not where David had hoped he would be at 61 years uh, of age. Uh, I would imagine that after 30 years on the throne, David had started looking you know, at who would succeed him as king, you know, where he would spend his retirement you know, uh, at. Whether he would work a little while longer uh, and basically be king till he died or whether he would retire to his palace uh, wherever. Um, but instead, he finds himself at that stage in his life right back where he started, running from a, a madman trying to kill him, hiding in the wilderness. Isn't that incredible? That he could have reigned for 30 plus years and found himself right back where he began. He had come full circle uh, and it, not in a good way. Uh, and don't you know when he looked up from that valley back at Jerusalem, uh, he felt a sense of failure, right? Failure as a leader, as a king, as a father. And, and, and frankly, you know, I mean, uh, beat up on David here a little bit. Uh, he had a lot to do with his own problems. Sometimes problems come into our lives and, you know, there's circumstances out of our control. Didn't ask for it, didn't do anything. But yeah, David, I mean, some would argue that his road into the valley there at Kidron uh, started back with his sin with Bathsheba, with his murder of Uriah, with his failure to intervene uh, with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom. Uh, but regardless, uh, you know, uh, David wasn't the innocent victim of circumstances that were beyond his control. Uh, he, he, he exercised some poor judgment that had led to his present circumstances. And maybe you can relate, right? I mean, maybe uh, you're beginning 2018 uh, in a place where you didn't think you'd be at this point in your life, right? You thought you'd be doing something different, living somewhere else in a better financial position. You thought your relationship with this person or that person would be different. You thought you'd be married by now. You thought you would have kids. You thought your kids would be gone by now uh, or that you would be retired. And you're struggling with the realization that some of the things you expected to happen, that you dreamed would happen in life, they may not happen like you planned. And maybe you're in that place because of circumstances beyond your control, or maybe if you're honest, you know, like David, like me, 
you just made some bad decisions, you know, at certain points in your life uh, that have helped, at least, lead you to where you're at. Uh, Maybe you're scared as you come into a new year uh, because the future looks uncertain, right? I mean, as David came out, he comes down into this valley and he's coming out of the Kidron Valley into the wilderness and he's fleeing for his life. I mean, we, to us, it's this story in the Bible. I mean, but this is, I mean, it, it happened. It's one of the reasons, by the way, I, you know, people get all bent out of shape when movies get made out of Bible stories and it's not accurate and all this kind of stuff. One of the reasons I kind of like that is because it helps us visualize these things really happened. And when it really happened to David, he had no idea what was going to happen next. You don't think that man was scared? You know he was. I mean, the smart money, by the way, at that point would have been on Absalom finding him and gutting him like a fish. That was, I mean, that's where uh, the smart money would be. I mean, he has no idea whether he will see Jerusalem again or if he will even live to see tomorrow. I mean, 24 hours ago, right, he'd been on the highest earthly throne with the future seemingly secured, and now he's in a deep valley with no assurance of anything other than fear. Uh, you and me, we're the, we're the same as David, deeply, deeply flawed people, uh, confused because life doesn't look the way that we thought that it would, guilty because of the mistakes we've made along the way that maybe contributed to it, fearful of an uncertain future. I mean, if you can identify with any of those things this morning, uh, I'm glad you're here because it's not the end of the story. David gives us an example that if we'll follow it, I mean, it's, it's going to change your life. And if you've zoned out, uh, by the way, at this point, you know, come back in uh, for just a couple of minutes. Uh, back to verses 25 and 26. If the Lord sees fit, he will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. David says, God, this is what I want. I mean, I, I want to come back. I want to see the ark in the tabernacle. Again, I, I want to come back to Jerusalem. But you do what seems best to you, not what seems best to me. Peace arrives for us in our lives when we recognize that God is our creator, that he knows what's best for our lives and not us. And peace arrives when we abandon uh, our plans and desires and expectations and decide that we're gonna embrace the plan that he has for our lives. Uh, David surrenders here to an uncertain future uh, and he surrenders uh, to God's certain plan for that future. Uh, and he did something that was just as important, by the way. Verse 27, he moved forward. The king also told Zadok, the priest, look, he, look, here is my plan. David had a plan. You and Abathar should return quietly to the city with your son, Hemiaz, and Abathar's son, Jonathan. By the way, you can say, as long as you say those names with confidence, here's a little tip in case you ever get, have to, read those verses out loud. Just say the names with confidence and nobody will question how you pronounce it. Um, verse 28, 
I will stop at the shallows of the Jordan River and wait there for a report from you. So Zadok and Abathar took the Ark of the Covenant back to the city and stayed there. David surrendered to whatever plan God had for his life. But that didn't mean he didn't move forward. Right? David had a plan to survive. He wanted to live. He had a plan to survive, and he began the process of putting that plan into motion. He didn't go hide somewhere or curl up in the fetal position and hope for the best. Things aren't the way that I thought they would be, and I don't know what's going to happen, and so I'm going to pull the covers over my head and hope that everything looks better tomorrow. His desire was to survive, and he was a warrior who knew how to plan a battle. He fought a few in his life. So he moved forward with a plan, and it's the same way for you and I. I mean, you know, you're in a bad place with your job. You don't know whether God wants you to take a new job, uh, but you think it's a possibility, so you move forward. And you seek advice from people, and you do your due diligence about this job, and you say to God, this is what I think, God, and this is what I think is best, but you do what you think is best in my life. And then you take the next step forward. And you pray that God will open the doors that he wants to open and close the doors that he wants to close. And you take the next step forward. And you submit the application and you do the interview. Just take the next step forward. That's what David was doing. He not only had a plan, by the way, he had a really good plan. Uh, He planted an undercover operative, a guy named Hushiah, as one of Absalom's advisors. And that advisor convinced Absalom not to pursue David right away to stay in Jerusalem. And that delay gave David the time he needed to formulate a strategy in which it's kind of a brilliant thing. He split his army into three separate armies and he drew Absalom's men uh, into the forest of Ephraim, right? And you can just, I mean, it's kind of like a Lord of the Rings kind of, I just imagine these huge trees. And I mean, this is where this battle is fought. And by a battle that David could not have won in the open plains. But the Bible tells us that in the forest of Ephraim, it, it, was, it, it neutralized Absalom's advantage. Uh, more than 20,000 men died in a day in that battle. 20,000. The Bible tells us that more men died from the forest than died from the sword. One of those men was Absalom, Right? five pounds of hair, gets caught in a tree branch. His donkey mule goes out from underneath him. One of Joab's men finds Absalom swinging there. Must have been a sight to see. And tells Joab, here's Absalom. By the way, the king had said, if you find Absalom, don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. Uh, Joab's man finds Absalom, brings, Ab- brings Joab and says, here he is. And Joab says, kill him. And the guy says, uh-uh, not me. The king said, don't do it. Joab doesn't have any problem. Sticks three daggers into the heart of Absalom. Kills him dead. Right there, hanging from a tree. Takes his body down, buries him under a pile of rocks. That's the end of Absalom. And David retook his throne in Jerusalem. He reigned for about nine more years, right? Until he was about, was about 70 years of age. Lots to that story. You should read that. 
lots and lots of incredible things that happened to David during that journey uh, and during that battle uh, at the forest of Ephraim. But that journey that David took out of Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley to the Jordan River, the journey that eventually led him back to Jerusalem really began in a positive way when he said to God, you do what seems best to you with my life. And that's pretty easy to say when you're sitting on the throne uh, and everything's going according to plan. It's a totally different story when you're down in the valley staring back at your disappointed expectations and your dreams that maybe won't come true uh, in the way you thought things would be, but they're not that way. It's more difficult to say that. I mean, I had something happen to me this year. I had an opportunity, and at first it didn't seem like it was even possible, and then things started to happen, you know? And I thought, man, this really seems like this, this, this thing could happen for me. And, uh, you know, because I'm a, I'm a church guy, you know, so I prayed for God's will, right? Because that's what you're supposed to do. God, your will be done. Your will be done. And everything seemed like it was falling into place. And I started, I was, in my mind, I had already planned that. I mean, I was already seeing all these things happening here and making these plans and didn't happen. Very disappointing. Kind of bitterly disappointing. I was surprised how disappointed I was because after all, I had said, God, your will be done. Which is always fine to say as long as God does what you think he should do. Totally different situation when God does what God wants to do, right? We're all on board with it as long as it goes in our, the way we think things should go. Maybe you've had some experiences like that in the past year. Um, in the next, I don't know, in about 90 days from now, we're gonna celebrate the resurrection, of our Savior. In fact, I think it's almost exactly 90 days uh, starting uh, tomorrow. Um, we're going to celebrate uh, our freedom from death and hell if you're a child of God. Matthew 26, 39, which is the next verse on the screen, <clears throat> says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. And this is Jesus. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You and I are going to be able to celebrate our freedom from death and hell because Jesus submitted his will to God the Father. Kind of, geez, David. Jesus, the son of David, the lineage of David, Old Testament to New Testament. Submission to God's will. For David, it took him back to Jerusalem. For Jesus, it took him to the cross. And I just wanna make this challenge to you. If you're a child of God, you may think you know, you know, what would seem best in your life, 
but you cannot find peace and joy in this life outside of God's will. You cannot find it. You will never find it. You can keep doing things your way, but I promise you, you will never find the peace and the joy that God has for you outside of his will. So I'll just make this challenge to you. If you want to see God at work in your life in this coming year, if you want to find God's will for your life, and we'd all say, oh yeah, that's me. I want to do that. Each day, in, in I would say between now and Easter, that's 90 days, but if, you, if that seems too much to you, then try it for 30 days at least. Start your day with these verses. Psalm 25, 1, 4, and 5. O Lord, I give my life to you. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me, for you are the God who saves me. All day long, I put my hope in you. Start your day with those verses. It's easy. It doesn't take long to do that. Then say these words to God. God, do what seems best to you with my life today. God, do what seems best to you with my life today. Do what seems best to you with my finances today, with my marriage today, with my job today. Do what seems best to you. And I'll warn you, I mean, he might just do it. Um, And it might not look like what you expected. And it probably won't. But if you're a child of God, the will of your creator is the only place where you can find hope and peace in this life. Uh, And if you're not, by the way, if you're not a child of God, and you don't even know what that means, right? I mean, this is all just Christian speak up here on a Sunday morning. Um, but you like, you're interested, you want to know more uh, about it. I mean, you can see me after church today. You can see Christian after services. We love to talk to you about what it means to be a child of God. You can mark it on your visitor's card, right? Sitting right there. We're going to take up the, uh, we're going to pass the offering plate around in just a minute. If you're a guest, visitor with us today, you don't need to put anything in that offering plate other than your card. And you can just mark on the back, hey, I'd like to learn more about accepting Christ as my Savior. Um, and if you're not comfortable doing that, by the way, any of those things, you, know, you can say, say this to God each morning for the next 30 days. God, I don't know if you're real, but if you are, please show yourself to me. Because the Bible tells us that if we seek God with all our hearts, we'll find him. I'm going to pray here in just a minute. And when I pray, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward in that offering plate. It's going to come around uh, and you can drop your card uh, in there. And you can drop, you can mark on the card if you, you know, just want to uh, have the pastor come talk with you, have coffee. He loves to do that. He meets you for coffee somewhere and just hang out. Um, if you'd like to learn more about getting involved here at Ministry and Milestone in 2018, just mark it. Uh, on your card, uh, and uh, just make this year the year uh, that you discover the joy and peace and hope that comes with a life fully surrendered to Christ. Father, I love you. Uh, I know that come Tuesday, there's going to be all kinds of things that come rushing in around us.
uh, the stress of life, the worries of bank accounts, careers, families. But I also know that you're the same God today as you will be on Tuesday. And I want my life to matter for something more than just trying to win the financial race, win the career race, make it to retirement, be comfortable, hope that everything goes well. I want to live the life my creator made me to live, a life fully devoted to you, a life that matters for eternity. As we give back to you now, Father, we give out of hearts of gratitude, acknowledging you as our creator and the Lord of all things.